0: This morning, thank you. Um, so yeah, let's read. Really cool. Okay. I you chapter four, Evil under the sun. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, neither son nor brother, yet there is an end, no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they are kept warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefolded cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, and though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move under the sun, along with that youth, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of God. Thank you.
1: Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. Lord, would you use these words written long ago but are now living and active uh, to speak into our life, uh, to illuminate in our hearts. Lord, would you allow these words to bring transformation and change? Would you allow us this morning to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word? Lord, speak to us now through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. All right, so Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I'm thankful uh, for Robert Marshall walking us through this passage last Sunday, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, hopefully, uh, you were blessed uh, in having him come and speak to us. Uh, I knew I was blessed, I was out last weekend, but thankful to go back and listen to that for a man who's walked many seasons of life, uh, it was. I, I was grateful to be able to learn from him and uh, to, to really allow him to teach our church and disciple us in the ways of navigating life under the sun. Uh, if, if his love for the Lord and his love for the word of God was not contagious, um, I, I, hope, uh, I hope you were able to receive that. And uh, as I was studying this week, I, I was able to meet with him, and he said, I, I hope I didn't mess things up for you. And I said, Well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, I, I think I might have actually took some of your passage that you're teaching next week. And so as we kind of began to set out the, the preaching schedule and we looked at natural breaks and kind of which passages of Scripture I know that uh, you are holding here today uh, where it's, page, like, it's set out in a certain page format. Um, there's headings there. There's numbers there. That wasn't in the original writing. And so... A lot of this, we we see that scholars have have taken this, and and they've broken down the Bible into these sections, and and so like chapter three, there may be some other stuff in chapter four that goes along with three, and when we kind of sat down and, and began looking at this, we actually looked at chapter four, one through three, and actually felt like that went better and connected better back with chapter three in talking about the injustices of the world that we've experienced at the end of chapter three. And uh, so he said, I I might've messed things up for you. And as I began studying and preparing this week, I actually began to see it the other way. And I will tell you that scholars debate whether or not one through three go with three or chapter four. And so uh, we flip-flopped. And I think it actually, now that I look at it a second time, Feels like, I feel like it goes closer with chapter 4. And I'm going to kind of give us an overall heading of where I see that fitting in. Um, but, I, but I'm thankful that he came and, and taught. And, and I think one of the things that as I was studying, as I was preparing uh, to teach the whole book of Ecclesiastes, is I came across a quote in talking about chapter 3 and the seasons of life. And it said, what difference would it make to our now... To begin to live in light of the fact that there will be a then. Even now, to to think that this isn't the season I'm always in. And I and I love the way he described last week this fighting of the season. And 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 like there's a tension that we experience sometimes when we're fighting this, this season and this life under the sun. And and what this quote went on to say, as many of the frustrations that arise in this life under the sun is actually from our blindness to the change of, of the season or to the pain and joy of them, and we struggle to adjust our expectations. And so we're, we're blind to the season. And what the author of Ecclesiastes wants to do for us uh, this morning and all the, ch- all the times in which we, we kind of open up this word is he doesn't want us to be blind to the different seasons of life. He doesn't want us to be blind to what life under the sun really looks like. The author of Ecclesiastes wants to equip us as to how best to live this life under the sun. And so I believe that some of the, the tension that we feel here on earth and life under the sun arise out of these different seasons of life and, and not being prepared. And so I, I want you to know this past week I was fighting the season and here's why. This past week my family took what I would say is one of our first family vacations, okay? Now, we've gone camping, and we went, and we visited family at different times, but it's kind of like, I don't, I don't want to take a real family vacation until my kids can remember, it. and so we set out and planned, and it's like, hey, we're going to go somewhere warm, somewhere exciting, somewhere fun, something that really captivates my kids' eyes, and so we went to Hawaii, And it was great. I can tell you it was great because we sat on the beach. It was 75 degrees. I was wearing swim trunks, you know, enjoying the the waves, the water, the palm trees. It was beautiful. And I was fighting the season coming back. And here's what I mean I told my wife, I said, first of all, I was like, I think they need more churches in Hawaii. I think we can consider planting churches, right? I think God may be calling us here. And, uh, and she said, no, we, we must go home, okay? So, um, so I was like, well, when we go back, I, I'm wearing swim trunks from now on, all right? Like, I'm going to fight the season. We are going to, when we return, I'm going to pretend that it is still 75 degrees outside, sunny, palm trees, and I want you to know, we came back on Tuesday night at midnight and I woke up Wednesday morning and there was snow on the ground. Now, when I went to bed at midnight and I was like, this is a cruel joke. And obviously you see that fighting the season didn't work, right? I I told them I was going to stand up here. I was going to preach. I was going to wear flip-flops just the same way like Robert said and swim trunks and a tank top and whether or not that was going to be appropriate, I didn't care. I was like, I am fighting the season. I love it here. I love sunshine. It feels good, right? Right? And, and what's interesting is if I were to continue in that, if I were to continue fighting the season, it would lead to misery, pain, and frustration. The text here today, if we, don't, if we fight and we resist against what he's laying out in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, if we fight the season that he's calling us to live in, it will lead to pain misery, and frustration. In fact, I'll tell you, all the pain in my life, all the frustration in my life, comes down to failing to walk in the season of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So, to kind of show you, and and I'll kind of give it in a phrase, and today's family worship, and so I've, I've simplified this phrase I want to show you the, the thread that runs all the way from verse 1 to 16, and it's this idea. We is better than me, all right? We can all say that. Ready? We is better than me. We is better than me. And, and I got to show you how, how we see that in the text this morning. I got to show you how that is the thread ran all the way from verse 1 all the way to 16, that we is better than me. Now, I don't think that that's revolutionary. I don't think that most of us come this morning. If anyone has ever moved before, you go, we is better than me, right? It's hard to move a refrigerator on your own, right? So it's like the more people to get together, awesome. If we're going to go and we're going to get in fight like we're in grade school, all right, we is better than me. It's better to have somebody on your team. It's, it's, it's easier in the sense like there's things that need to get done, and, and I don't think that comes as any surprise. But I want you to see this morning that most of life, we actually live contradictory to the statement of we is better than me. We live with this belief, with this ideology that me is better than we. All right, and so that's where we're going. We live in a very individualized society, seeking out our own desires, our own wants, our own needs, our life, our future, and in a way, we're we're fighting the season. We're living blind to the reality in which God has created us, and and I would just like go back to Genesis 2.18. I think this is always tied to marriage, but I just want you to see like it is not good for man to be alone any any man any person it's not good for us to be alone now i said let me show you how i see this this thread running through well right here in verse 1 it says again i saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the press and they had what no one no one they're alone And this is where we first kind of see this thread that we is better than me because this idea of oppression, this idea of being sin entering in and the brokenness that's experienced here in this first paragraph is it creates isolation. It pulls us apart. We think about the oppression in the world oppression is rooted in this idea of, I'm primary. It's all about me. If you look at every injustice in the world, if you look at anything, and it goes on, it says, they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. This power is a ruling over It is a sense of when we think of oppression, oppression leads to isolation. Oppression leads to me ruling over you in a certain way that my needs and my desires and my wants are more important than yours. And if my needs and my desires are more important than yours, then it's a dog-eat-dog kind of world. And my job in, in, in this world is to oppress you so I can make sure that I take care of me in the midst of this. And so we see in this, this text this, this idea of oppression and, and it's ultimately it's sinfulness, it's brokenness. This is the world and this sinfulness, this brokenness, we see that not only does sin break off our relationship with God, not that God runs from us, but we run from God in our sin, we do what Adam and Eve did and we run and we hide, we isolate. But we also see that it, it breaks relationship with one another. That in our sin, in our brokenness, in our oppression, in our seeking to take care of me, we actually oppress others. And I want you to think, because I think when we think of oppression, we, we think of human trafficking, we think of, we think of slavery, we think of racial injustice, we think of all the things. But I, I just want you to like, maybe take that term and apply it to you. In what ways have you oppressed people in putting your needs before theirs?" In what ways have you oppressed people in a, in a way in which that you've caused them to be other and that you've isolated yourself from them, that you've sought to rule over them, and maybe that's not your mindset, that's not the train of thought that you've kind of ran through of going, my, my job, I'm, I want to rule over you, I want to oppress you in a way, but in our, our seeking of our own desires and wants, that is exactly what we've done. That's exactly what I've done. In many ways, as we, we've lived out life under the sun, we, we, it's this self-protection. It's how do I take care of me? The root of all oppression is me is better than we. Not we is better than me. If... Uh, For those of you who know me or get to do life with me, and maybe if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. And I think I read this, it says that they have power. An eight on the Enneagram, like you talk about personality types or how we relate to one another, uh, eight is the powerful person. What's interesting about that is an eight who's operating in a very healthy way isn't utilizing that, that power in a way to domineer or using that power in a way to oppress, but is using that power in a way to protect and to serve. So I, I can take the very way in which I believe God designed me and wired me, and I can use it for me or I can use it for we. And I think for you, I, I would just say, like, in what ways has God wired you? And what ways has God designed you and created you? And, and what has he given you abilities and power to do, not to rule over people and to oppress people and to isolate people, but in what ways has God given you gifts and ways that you can have this idea of this we thinking of, of how do I serve greater body. I think what's interesting in this is that we we read this text, and it, and it goes on, and it talks about, like, how would we respond to this oppression? How, how do you respond? And I think it's the reality is Solomon writes this, as the author of Ecclesiastes writes this, he He looks at all this brokenness, he looks at all this isolation, he looks at people being alone with no one to comfort them, and he's distraught over it. How do you respond to the oppression in the world? We think about the news. I know for me, I'm like, how do I avoid that? Some of us, we go to distraction. How do I distract myself from it? Some of us are, are totally enveloped in it and like we, we can't, I mean, it's overwhelming us. Some of us seek out ways of pleasure to numb or anesthetize us from being able to feel the oppression and the way that, that Solomon de- describes here is in verses two and three, he says, And I thought, this is his response to that oppression, to that isolation, to that brokenness in the world. I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not been and who has not seen the deeds that are done under the sun. It's like life under the sun is a mess. And sometimes it's just better, like, it's better to be dead. And sometimes you look at this, this idea of, of the oppression in the world, and it's like, sometimes it would just be better to not be born at all. In fact, if we go back into the Old Testament, Jonah kind of reacted the same thing. He kind of responded with a death wish. We read in Jonah chapter 4, verse 3. We see Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4. We see this idea, they, they both approach life, it'd be better if I was dead, and, and actually God rebuked them both for thinking that way. And so this is where many of us go. I think many of us go to a place of, of feeling this experience, this, this oppression, and and one of the things that I, I, I think about as I, as I read this is, some of us go, like, we want to be oblivious to it. We want to, and I, I will, if I can kind of, like, give some good news in the midst of this. Is going There will one day come a day where it's we don't have to distract ourselves from the oppression of the world. We don't have to pleasure ourselves from the oppression of the world. We don't have to, like, wish that we were dead. God will judge the world, and God will take care of every injustice. God will take care of every brokenness. God will take care of every isolation. God will be near. God will experience this closeness and this unity. And what I I want you to see in in this, this text, in just these three short passages, is this. Many of your attempts, many of my attempts in this world to gain, many of my attempts to get ahead... Many of my attempts to to seek some sense of reward for myself will hurt others, will oppress others, will isolate others. When all we think about is me, the common thread amongst the people that surrounds us is it'd be better if I didn't even exist. So we is better than me. It goes on. And when I first heard this passage, I was kind of blown away. at Just the simplicity that's wrapped in this one statement. You ready? Verse 4. Then I saw all toil and all skill in work come from man's envy of his neighbor. toil. Just endless working, endless grasping. He's going to talk about two hands full of toil. You're just you're just out to get yours. Why? Why why do we have workaholics in the world? Because of man's envy of his neighbor. There is a sense where you no longer can celebrate and enjoy the success of your neighbor. Why? Because you want that for yourself. And so if my neighbor if if I can oppress him, if I can rule over him, if I can do more than him, if I can seek after more success than him, then then That will bring me joy. That will bring me significance. That will bring me meaning. It's this me is better than we thinking. How do I take care of me? And I would just ask you, how well do you do at celebrating the successes of your friends, of your neighbors? Do you look at that and you're you're truly able to come to a place of going like, man, I'm so happy for you. Or is there a sense in your own life that, that is, is rooted in this idea of envy that you feel like I, I gotta go get that? I I gotta work harder. I gotta produce more. When I think about like what drives and motivates work, and I think there's gonna be two responses to it, and he and he, and he gives us these two responses in the text. One, it's going to lead to laziness. Two, it's going to lead to busyness. But there's going to be a middle ground, and he talks about it being quietness, having quiet hands. I think that's where, when, when I talk about, like, fighting the season, fighting the season is like moving to laziness or busyness. And it's like embracing the season. How do I live with hands of quietness? I just like as you kind of describe your life, as you describe your work ethic, as you describe the the situation that you're in, do you think of yourself as having quiet hands? It's descriptive of a place of peace, a place of rest. Is, Is that descriptive of your life? Or do you see all the what you would categorize as gain in the world? And, and your envy and your are reaching for that and you're wanting to find satisfaction in that actually is causing you to like have hands of toil. I think what's interesting is uh, I came across a quote a long time ago and I couldn't actually uh, remember it and I couldn't find it and, uh, but It it ultimately was talking about in a hundred years, and this was written in 1930, and so in 2030, okay, we're not far from there. But written in 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 1930, John Maynard Keynes said that we were going to be working 15 hour work weeks, we were going to be living lives of leisure. Like I I mean, this was going to be the descriptive like of you know playing golf sitting under palm trees, right? Like this was going to be our life. In fact, if you look back in 1969, invention of the internet, they said the next 50 years are going to be exactly that. They said that in 1969. They said it's going to be lives of leisure. We're going to probably work 15-hour work weeks. Here's the thing. It's nothing new. Guess what? With the invention of AI now, here, I just came across an article last week. It said, in, in the next 50 years, here's what we're gonna experience. We're gonna be living longer and feeling better. There's gonna be less work, more leisure, there's gonna be more collaboration and community. Here's it's not gonna happen, guys. We keep saying this, and but there's something that is driving this toil. It's envy. It's envy. You want what others have. We're not satisfied. We're not finding wealth in relationships. We're seeking wealth and riches. Proverbs 14.30, it says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. If you've ever been envious, that is a great description, I feel like, of just like eating away at you. It says that, better is handful, verse 6. I'll come back to verse 5. It says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. It's this idea of of like, that's the the middle ground. Some of us see this idea and go, well, I can't can't have what my neighbor has, so forget it. I'm just not going to work at all. She's going to be lazy, and what does it say he does? He says he folds his hand, and he eats his flesh. A person who doesn't work doesn't have anything but himself. He self-destructs. He starves. But the other description is, is one who has two hands full of Toil. Driven by other people's expectations, driven by your own expectations of what you should be, seeking to be ahead, seeking to be whatever, just fill in the blank. It's just full of toil. Do you know quietness? Jesus was the most capable human being that ever walked the planet Earth, he could heal anyone. If we think about it, we look at, at Jesus' life as like, man, he is so accomplished. He's so successful. He should go on a world healing tour, right? But yet he still took time away to rest. He still, he, he, if you look at Jesus, I, I love, I can't remember who it was, uh, but it said like, how would you describe Jesus? And the word was unhurried. Like he had quiet hands, He had the most capable hands. Like we look at it and like, but I'm skilled. Like I have so many, like, I have so many tools and resources. I have so much to bring and offer the world. And it's like we it fails to compare to what Jesus had. But yet Jesus regularly took time away. Jesus regularly got away. Jesus pulled away from the crowds. He had quiet hands. Do you live lives that are quiet? Do you have this quietness? Do you have this rest? And this rest comes from A we is better than me mentality. I'll get there. I'll help us see that. For me, how do I have quietness? It's easy for me to feel like work's never done. I don't think I'm unique in that. I think a lot of you feel like there's... There's always more. There's always something else I could be working on. I just have a tendency to spiritualize it because it has to do with your spiritual growth. So when I sit at home and I get off at 5 p.m., it, I'm, I'm still tend to tending to to think about like what is what more can we offer? What more can we do? How, how, how much more can we serve? How much more can we love? How much more can we care? How much more can we disciple? How much more can we prepare? Like, there, there's always this sense. And for me, it's not necessarily rooted in a, a, a sense of maybe this idea of, like, how do I best care for you? That line of thinking is more of going, my of, of what I think your expectations may be of me. Of what my my role is. And the reality is, I'm it's 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 very important that um, I don't think I'm your savior or any of our pastors. And it's also very important that you don't think we're savior. And it's it's important that we have that understanding. If I think it's all about me, if it's thinking it's all about what I have to give you, if I think about it, it's all about the tools and resources, and then, then I'm totally taking out the equation that the body of Christ can actually serve in your life. So it's important. You know what the, the worst kind of pastor? The worst kind of father? The worst kind of mother is one that has hands full of toil. That's not a present pastor. That's not a present friend. That's not a present companion. How do we have hands of quietness? You know, for me, it's I go on vacation. I turn my phone off. It's not that I don't want to be accessible to you. I want to be available to my family. I want to be present. Turning your phone off from work, being able to 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 set work off. Who are you working for? That's what the next parable is about. That's why he describes this man with no son or brother who comes to this conclusion of going, who am I actually working for? Have you thought about that? I think the answer for most of us is me. I'm working for identity. I'm working for significance. I'm working for me. It's not this we mentality. Let's read on verse 7. He said, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother. He's like, he doesn't have anybody. Whether he does or doesn't, you know, utilizing this parable, I think for us, we it's not like we live as if we don't have a son or brother. How many of us whether that's the reality, we live as if there's no other person. Yet there's no end to his toil. I think that's interesting, though, even the way that's phrased. It's like, he doesn't have a son or brother and there's no end to his toil. It's kind of like, what's expected in that is, like if you were toilsome, that you would actually be doing that for the people that are around you. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling or depriving myself pleasure? This is also vanity and unhappy business. This is a picture of someone who is lonely, who's isolated, who's working really, really hard, hoping to find satisfaction in his riches, but he doesn't. His eyes are never satisfied. And he doesn't have anyone to share it with. And it, and it's almost like he, this description, this picture is, is one of someone experiencing that misery and that pain and that frustration that I talked about of fighting the season. It's like, some of us look at that and go like, I don't know, I think that would be quite joyful. Like just working, working for myself, having all my income for myself, like that sounds great. And it's like, He wasn't finding satisfaction in the riches. He wasn't finding any meaning in it. And he had no one to share it with. And I think this idea, this restless striving in our life is rooted in me versus the we mentality. What people don't say on their deathbed, if you've ever been with someone in that moment, I wish I would have been in the office more. I wish I would have worked longer hours. I wish I would have gotten, you know, this success in life. It, it all comes down to our wealth is not found in our riches. Our wealth is found in our relationships. Who do you share with? And I'm not talking, like, you don't have to be married. You don't have to be, like, this is all of mankind. Like, who is it that you share life with? This idea of we. And then Solomon uses this line in verse 9. He says in this, we is better than me. What does he say? Two Are better than one. Do you believe that? How would it change your thinking if you really began to believe that two are better than one? Now, I can tell you when I think of two are better than one, I almost always go to the mindset of thinking, yeah, who can I join my life to? And they pull me along, right? That's that's where I tend to go. It's going to give us all sorts of reasons why two is better than one. Yeah, somebody can keep me warm. Someone can help me gain more reward for my toil. It's all about, it's still rooted in me, right? So how much when we think of this, two are better than one, that it actually motivates you to go like, I need to find that other one that I need to bring along with me. I think this is the most common passage in Ecclesiastes. We've heard this taught along, and we're like, yeah, we need to be joined to someone. But even in our joining with someone, it's so much still like it's it's still rooted in this me mentality. It's not about what I can give to the other, but what I can gain from the other. Because we're still in this mindset of trying to figure out how we can get gain and reward in the world that we don't actually enjoy our companion because we actually want to oppress our companion. That's the reality of life for most of us. And I think we're, we're blind to it in, in, in so many ways because we don't actually enjoy our kids. We don't actually enjoy our wives or enjoy our spouses or enjoy our jobs because we're, we're seeking to gain something from them that we were never intended to gain from them. And so we don't live this life of quietness Or maybe if to use language in Ecclesiastes, if we go back to Ecclesiastes 2.24, it says that you would find enjoyment in what you eat, and what you drink, and in your work. Not toilsome. So if we're not seeking to oppress, if we're, we're seeking to join our life with someone so we can give to them, well, what are some good reasons that we is better than me? He lists some Good reward for your toil. Yeah, you're going to get more done together. That's great for both of you. If you fall, there's someone to lift you up. If you're cold, there's somebody to keep you warm and vice versa. If you got people coming against you, you're going to prevail. And so he's just giving these examples of this idea of like, what does it look like for, for us to join our lives? Do you, do you think that way? Do you, as you start the week tomorrow morning, are you, are you starting tomorrow morning with the idea of two is better than one? One of the rhythms and practices we do as a family is we think through this lens of what I call, I, I would say, the five capitals, okay? And you know I'm all about alliteration, so they all start with F, isn't that called alliteration? What's that called? Yeah, I see some heads nodding. Okay. I was thinking an acronym. That's something different. Okay. Faith, family, fitness, formation, finance. These are the five areas that you're investing. If you got more, come to me. I'd love to know what they are. But these are the five areas that you're investing in. And you're, inve- in, and you're meant and you're designed and you're created to invest in them in this order. Because one helps determine the next. As you look at your faith, it's, it's really the why. Why am I working? Why am I striving? Why am I toiling? Why, what is my purpose? Why am I here? What am I doing? All of that's rooted in the fact that you've been given by God, the creator. You've been given a design. You've been, given, you've been placed in this specific time in history in which God has placed you for a specific reason. Why are you here? And, and your belief in that is, is meant to give to others. So I, I call it family, but I, I don't think of just, yes, you have an intermediate family like the people that you live with, the people that are under your roof, but this is all of your relationships. This is all of your friendships. Who are the people that, that you're called to, to serve and invest in? Now, if I show you the breakdown in this, I know a lot of people who invest in the fifth one, finance. It's all about the bottom line. And I, how many people have you met that you're like, they have all the money in the world? And you ask them, like, do you feel wealthy? Do you feel full of life like the Bible describes? And the answer is no. And the reason why is because wealth isn't found in just finance. Wealth is found in all of these categories. And so we may be full of wealth when it comes to our finances, but... We, we lack this idea of going like, we haven't built wealth in all of these other categories and because of it, we're actually lacking. And so like, how are you investing? Fitness is just your overall health and well-being. We can have all the world, money in the world, but be sick and, and experiencing pain and ailments and other areas of our life. And, and it's like, we don't seek this sense this wholeness of life formation how are you being developed how are you how are you developing yourself spiritually intellectually and then finance yeah how are, how are you investing the dollars and cents that you have and so we see in all these categories we see, we see this idea of, of going like how do I how do I think through this and so for me I look through this every week and I My schedule is based on these five areas. How do I invest in these areas every week? Who are the people that I need to call? Who are the people I need to check in with? And I love that it doesn't say like 52 are better than one. Because some of us, we've we've bought into this mindset because social media that we're, we're meant to have like a thousand friends. And, and the reality is, is most of us can only truly give, and I'm talking about giving, of your life and soul to another, like three to five people. And so many of us are trying to give to 105 that we can't give to the five adequately. Who are you called to be joined with? Who is your two? Who are you called to serve? Because we is better me. Did Jesus believe this? I think that's always a good question. Did Jesus live this out? I don't know. He sent the disciples out two by two. He didn't send them alone. Did Jesus live a a we mentality? Absolutely. Philippians chapter 2, what did Jesus do? He emptied Himself He gave of his life. Jesus didn't look at this and go like, hey, you know, who can I join? Jesus like, who can I give my life to? Did the New Testament church practice this? Yeah, Acts chapter 2. They sold of their possessions. They gave to one another. Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 23, 22, it says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge. Why? Because you're going to leave some for the poor and for the sojourner. It's like, don't use up all your resources. Why? So that you would have some to be able to give. So that you would have this we mentality. So so you're you starting to see this, this thread throughout this text, this idea of we is better than me. This idea of going like we're, we're not out to oppress others. We're not out to isolate others. We're not out to, we don't, we don't want, want to get to a place where we're crossing our arms and Self-destructing and eating our flesh. We don't want to get to a place where we're working so hard out of, out of envy and, and love and desire and seeking satisfaction that we can't have hands of quietness, that we can't actually give to the people that matter in our lives. Or we so work for one of the categories that we don't invest in the other four. That's what the last part about. This last part is really confusing. There's been a lot of debate in 13 through 16. We're like, what is going on here? And uh, it was helpful for me to just read in Eugene Peterson, uh, he, he re- in the message translation, how, how he described this passage. And so uh, I put that in our text this morning. So it says, a poor child with some wisdom is better off than an old but foolish king who does not know which end is up. I saw a youth just like this start with nothing and go from rags to riches, and I saw everyone rally to rule, to the rule of this young successor to the king. Even so, the excitement died quickly. Uh, to me, it's like the story kind of changed there. I thought we were like, for, for a second there, I felt like we were, we were trying to look at these two kings, and then all of a sudden, it's like, well, that, I thought that king was well off, and then all of a sudden, it's like, well, his fanfare died out too. The throngs of people soon lost interest. Can you see it's only smoke and spitting into the wind? Here's what I think it's getting at. What will you say at the end of your life? I'm glad I gave my time to We may think that ruling as king, and I think as Solomon as king, I, I think you know he's writing himself into the story in the sense of going like maybe humbly of of going like you know what I'm not taking anybody's advice. I'm not taking you know I'm I'm ruling a certain way, and like people aren't following me, and like this other young king he's rising up. Everyone's praising his name, but at the end of the day, like the fanfare is going to end. There's going to be brevity to his fame. He's going to be forgotten. No one's going to remember the king. And I tend to think of my own life, and I don't, I don't do this in a way of, of discrediting relationships, but the truth is, is like, the majority of you will not be at my deathbed. But how much of my life and mind and time is spent thinking of you? Is that appropriate for me? Is that appropriate of you to, to do that with the relationships you have. Who's going to be there? Who's going to be standing at the end of your bed? We may give our life to so many worthy causes. We may give our lives to the sense of, of worldly success, of being king, only to find you're forgotten. And he's like, man, that is depressing. It is striving after the wind. But it, I don't think it moves us to a place of depression. I think it should move us to a place of investment, of going like, so where do I invest? Where do I give my time? Where do I give my attention? Where do I, how do I steward my resources? How do I utilize the things God's given me to serve and bless those around me? How do I care for those people closest to me? Because we is better than me. I think about this king and, I, I, and thinking through that phrase, I go, it's, it's easy for me to think about my life as, as king, okay? Now, if you'll, you'll go with me, if I think about like my role as pastor, I'm like, I'm king over this. Maybe you think like, I'm, I'm, I'm king over wherever your workplace is and like your rule, you're the boss, you're in charge. You've become the CEO. And You're a big deal. And, and you've reached this point. I think so many of us, we, we, we keep striving because we think that that next promotion, that next promotion, the next promotion, and that at the end, we find like, oh, man. And we've sacrificed the things closest to us to get there. And it's like spitting into the wind. When I read this and I, and I look at this text, I, I come to the conclusion of all of this is that the moment that we believe that we're all out for ourselves, that I got to get mine, is when we find ourselves desperately alone. It's where most of us will, will find we're, we're in this place of isolation. You have an us versus them mentality. And so I, I would just ask you this morning because as we bring this, we talk about Christological preaching. How does Jesus free us up to live this way? How does Jesus free us up for we instead of me? And I talked about this several weeks ago about the the scarcity mindset. We talked about 2020, like we didn't have any toilet paper, right? And so like we were stockpiling it. And like only you knew the people that loved you because they were bringing you toilet paper. And you're like, "Oh, those people really care for me. Everyone else was hoarding it, right?" And and it's like things that are In scarcity, you don't tend to give. It's like, so when I think of like my strength and I go, well, Jesus has given us his strength. He is powerful. He's given us that strength so I can be strong for others. Jesus has has provided for us. He's provided eternal life. He's provided everlasting joy. He's provided us fullness of life so we can give our life to others. Jesus has brought encouragement. He's brought meaning and purpose so I can give that to others. What Jesus has done for you allows you and frees you to do it for others. In Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 10. I don't I don't know that I have this on the screen, but verse 11. I think he describes right here, and I'll close with this. This is that, that we versus me mentality. I, I want you to see how like... Contradict like this is so contrasting to to our culture today. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even eight, for you know you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Okay, let me ask you: you do not know what disaster is going to happen on earth, so you should give to seven or eight people. Does that now sound opposite of what we should do? We don't know what like. In troubled times, like, you know, the stock market's crashing and we're going to war with whoever, and you're like, I don't know, I think I might want to keep my dining room table reserved for me. Don't know that I want to share, but it's like, no, you don't know what's going to happen, so you should probably give to seven or eight. And it's in that that we're truly freed. It's in that that our grip over this sense of, like, how do I get ahead? How do I oppress them? How do I. I actually begin to go, like, how do I serve? This is the life of Jesus. If you don't know much about Jesus and you're walking into the room this morning, you're like, hey, what you're calling us to is crazy. I mean, like, that's never really? I'm like, yeah, that, that's how Jesus transformed the world. Jesus comes. Jesus is the king that will never be forgotten. Jesus is the king who came and gave of his life. Jesus came. When I, when I think about this sense of oppression, I go, you know what? We'll damn our neighbor so that we can be king. Jesus was king and was willing to be damned so we can be in rule, like rule with him. It's so countercultural. What Jesus did for us, what Jesus came to do, Jesus came to pour out his life, to empty his life for the sake of the other. Do you believe? this morning, that we is better than me. What would it look like for you this week to live with the mentality, we is better than me? Let's pray. Father, I, when I think back on So many of the areas of my own life of self-protection, of seeking to take care of me, provide for me, it truly is rooted in failing to believe that you've done those things for me. So I pray that you would root us in belief this morning, that Lord Jesus, you've given us all. You've given it to us all. You've given us your life. You didn't hold anything back. You came, you didn't just give us a little, you gave us your life. So, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't hold back, that we wouldn't reserve the table for just us, but we would freely give to those we are seeking to join our life with the two. Three. When I think about this idea of three, Father, I'm it just comes to mind that we're two or more are gathered in my name. There you are in our midst. And Lord, you join in this relationship with us. Lord, you join your life to us. We're we're so other, but yet you you came and you chose to dwell amongst us. So Lord, we we pray that we would fully receive that and hear that this morning and that we would do likewise. Father, help us to, to see that this morning. May your spirit continue to help root this message in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As, uh, as the worship team comes up and as we sing our final few songs, I just want you to know we're going to have a time of response this morning a time to pray for you, a time to uh, just encourage you. And there's going to be people stationed at the, the back of the room uh, during our, our next two songs, and uh, they would love to pray for you. They'd love to encourage you. And so if there's any need, big or small, uh, you're like, hey, I got a test this week. Hey, I got a relationship that I just want wisdom on. I, this is a great opportunity for us to come alongside one another. And, uh, and and to do, even what we just read, that we come along and lift one another up. And some of us just feel like we're in a bad place this morning. And we just want to know that we're not alone. I, I would just encourage you, like, we we would love to just reach out a hand to you and go, like, how can we walk alongside you? How can we help you? If you're here this morning and you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, I would encourage you there's no greater decision that you could ever make. And this morning, if you want to know some next steps, all you need to do is walk back, tell the person saying like, hey, I want to commit my life to Jesus. We'd love to help you. We'd love to walk alongside you. Father, pray for our time even as we respond this morning. I pray that your worship would fill our lives, that we would not leave as people uh, who are empty or isolated or feel like uh, we don't have any wealth in this world. Lord, your word tells us in Ephesians, that you've given us immeasurable riches in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would live as a wealthy people, maybe not financial wealth, but Lord, that we would live as a wealthy people, that we have everything at our disposal that we would give to others. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Would you stand and sing? If you have any need, please uh, join our prayer team in the back.